How do you choose the right new car? Like whatever you're in the market for, small car, cheap car, nasty car, luxury car, big fat four wheel drive, ute, whatever it is. How do you get from a market with 60 different brands and 300-ish different models on sale today with 20 or 30 entrants in all the popular segments? How do you get from that to the Goldilocks new car for you? That's next. I'm John Cadogan from AutoExpert. And I get new cars cheap. I friggin' do, dude. Let's not forget it. Website. Card. Now, of all of the questions that I get by email, like, the most common one is, I'm so confused. Which one is right for me? Please tell me, because every car maker on every car maker's website can give you a thousand reasons why their car is not just good, but excellent and, coincidentally, the best for you, right? And there's all this noise you've got to filter for what they're not saying because they never tell you what shit about their car, right? And they never tell you what shit about them. It's like every CV you've ever read or written, okay? It's just full of lies and omissions, essentially. That's what carmaker websites are, right? So there's so much money on the line. Even if you are buying the cheapest, nastiest, shittiest car in Australia, that's still probably a pretty big spend for you. It might be the first brand new car you've ever owned and you really don't want to get up, do you? Because that is going to be kind of a disaster that's hard to get out of ultimately. So I got this question here from Jake Attengard, which is a them's fighting words proposition, isn't it? And he's essentially got this problem and he's also got a bit of a problem with me, which I'm down with that. I've got a few problems with me, so hey, we're in furious agreement on that, Mr. Guard. Jay says, I've watched a lot of your content. I'm terribly so, mate. That's just time that you're not going to get back. I mean, we're here for a limited time on Earth, and I can't refund any of that. It's very confronting. Anyway, I noticed that your opinion is that various manufacturers of ute in Australia are awful for reasons relating to either corporate fraud, reliability, or customer service problems. Well, yeah, that's true. I've recently started a gardening business, and <laughs> good time to do that, actually, with all of this rain we've had for 12-month growth rates through the roof. I'll be doing a fair bit of pruning right about now. I'm tipping. Currently running it out of my 2013 Toyota Corolla. Brackets. No. Honestly. Hashtag. Degree of difficulty, 9.8. And I'm looking at buying a ute in the near future, good call, decent upgrade, because it will be more compatible with my chosen profession. Yeah, agreed, stamp of approval, dude. However, if Ford and Isuzu are problematic due to reliability and customer service issues, Volkswagen and Toyota have previous instances of massive corporate fraud and I simply don't fit in a Mazda. I'm quite tall, and the interiors of Mazdas don't accommodate. Dude, the Mazda is the Isuzu. They're just hair and makeup. So one's a blonde and the other one's a brunette, but they're dizygotic twins otherwise. What brand of ute should I get? This is the quandary, okay? 
Or are all manufacturers just so used to screwing over the greater population of Oz that they're all much of a muchness? No, they're not. There's significant differences between them. And they're not like Dr. Evil, dude. They don't get up with the intention of screwing you over. They're just sociopaths, car makers, all right? They behave, if they were human, they'd be sociopaths, right? Because they only think about themselves and they don't have any empathy for you. And to the extent that they do have empathy, it's just that some of them have decided that it's better to comply with consumer law. And some of them have decided that, hey, it's a marketing initiative because actually doing the right thing by people, word gets around, blah, 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 okay? I don't think there's too much Dr. Evil about it. It's just that some of them have decided that they make more money by not complying with consumer law, and it's a bit like, eh, when it comes to how you feel about that, right? So we'll get into that in just a bit. But in terms of answering Mr. Erkengard's question here, I'd buy a Triton, dude. That I, and not only would I, I did buy a Triton. And if you're running a gardening business out of a Corolla, okay, a ute is going to be a massive upgrade. Any ute is going to be a massive upgrade in the context of being able to carry dirty, bulky, heavy crap, okay? And for this reason, I'd suggest that a Triton, although it is not the most heavy duty of workhorses and it's not the most capable in many ways, like in terms of its outright tow capacity, it's the best value in terms of bang for your buck. And if you buy a 4x4 one, it's got the most advanced four-wheel drive system of all of the competitors in that genre, okay, because you can use four-wheel drive high range on a high-traction surface right, with a centre diff unlocked. It, there's a mode for that. And you can't do that in the competition, most of it at least, because they're just, they're set up like a Massey Harris tractor, you know, for four-wheel drive. You need to be on a slippery surface before you can engage four-wheel drive. So you lose the benefits that you would get, for example, in the Triton or in uh, a four-wheel drive, like an SUV wagon sort of thing, like a Santa Fe or whatever. Okay, so... What I do with the money I save, because you'll save substantially over an equivalent Hilux or Ranger. If you're running your gardening business, just when you buy your ute, get a tow bar, okay? And if you run out of storage volume or load carrying capacity, get yourself an 8x5 trailer with high sides, and I've got one of them incidentally, and mine weighs 400 kilos, and it's got a two-ton aggregate trailer mass, so it's got a payload capacity of 1.6 tonnes, which is roughly double the payload capacity of the Triton. So you can carry a shitload more stuff in a trailer, is what I'm saying, and if you limit yourself to two tonnes, a Triton is going to tow that easily. If the trailer's properly set up, you'll hardly even feel it, dude. So that's the solution in... Mr. Engard's case, right? But more broadly, how do you decide if you're not in the market for a ute or if your objective is different? Like, what about if you wanted to drive the Canning stock route or go to Cape York or spend 12 months as a grey nomad towing the Chitois to Dingo Piss Creek? How do you do that? Or maybe you want to downsize and you just want a small fuel efficient car or you want a hybrid or you want an EV. Like, the process is the same. 
you've got to get from this big list of competitors to the short list of cars that are right for you. And in the current market where demand grossly outstrips supply and waiting lists of 12 months are hardly uncommon, unfortunately, then what you've got to do is you've got to have this short list and then balance that up against what you can get in a timely fashion if that matters. So here's how I'd do that. The easiest process of elimination to go through is elimination of manufacturers because manufacturers define the culture of support and when you buy a car you cannot divorce yourself from the manufacturer of that car because if it goes poopy in its trousers under warranty or not later on you are going to depend on them for some form of support and that doesn't mean like only a free repair what it means is you are going to be dependent on them for technical support, availability of parts, dealership network. If you're traveling all over in the boonies, right, it's good to go with a manufacturer that has a massive support network as opposed to just, I don't know, half a dozen dealerships around the country sort of thing. Okay. So with all of that in mind, I also want to address the point of <laughs> I'm critical of every car maker. I'd suggest that car makers have got a ton of resources right like they've got so much money to spend telling you how shit hot they are they spend six figure sums on communication seven figure sums on communications right their websites probably costing them hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to maintain and every marketing campaign is a million dollar spend multi-million dollars get spent vomiting all of this rhetoric about how fucking great they are and the function of journalism is to tell you when they're not you know, if it bleeds, it leads kind of thing, right? So when a car maker does something bad, they're not going to issue a press release and say, we fucked up the design of that one. It just doesn't happen, okay? So that's where journalists come in. And in an ideal world, all journalists would be like that. But they're not because car makers know that the easiest way to control journalism is to do a few things. You know, you've got your sinister clutch of tame journalists and you keep throwing them new cars. Like most of these professional car reviewers don't own a car or if they do statistically, they don't drive it because they're always driving someone else's brand new car. And they pick it up clean with a full tank of fuel and they drop it back a week later empty and filthy, right? Like that's the job description. And I get no problem with that, but it's a way of leveraging positive commentary for various brands. Because if you shit can one, <laughs> they're not going to lend you another AMG whatever, right? It's just not going to happen. So there's that. So if you want to be honest with the audience, you put one of the main perks of your job at risk. And you also won't get invited to any of the big gigs like I've flown all around the world and stayed in some shit-hot resorts all on the car industry's dime. I don't do it anymore. I haven't done it for about, I don't know, 10 years or something now. But when you're doing that, you're in this sort of club and you just fly to exotic places and you spend a couple of days in New York and you spend, you know, 
a couple of weeks a year in Europe and it's all business class and it's all five star and the food is all shit hot and you don't have to worry. You know, when you go on holidays, you've got to devote all of this time and effort to logistic planning. How are we getting from Rome to Paris and how are we going to get from Paris back to whatever, right? If you do the European Odyssey holiday, as a journalist, you don't have to worry about that. You just have to be at the airport at the right time. And it all happens around you and there's like stretch S-class limousine transfer from the airport in Florence to the hotel, right? That that was an example of uh, my previous life, you know, I flew to Florence and come and enjoy the new Mercedes-Benz SL and, you know, you, you just get to the airport, you get in the plane, it's business class, you get off, there's a stretch waiting for you, it takes you to a five-star whatever, and the next day, all of the test cars are out the front. You go for a great drive through Tuscany and they've got some entertainment with a big dinner and their execs and technical experts to talk to that night. And the next day, the limos pick you up, take you back to the airport. Verve Clicco, all the way home kind of thing. And if you criticise that car maker, you're not doing that anymore. It's a decision that you have to make to do right? And the next thing that happens, of course, if you still buck this trend, is the car maker has a proper fucking tantrum, right? And that means that their marketing dude calls the commercial director of the outlet that you work for and says, we're pulling our ads unless you get this clown in line. And that's a pretty confronting position to be in when you're trying to pay the mortgage and feed your family. And I can say that with some authority because I've been to some of those meetings and I've been the target of clown-like allegations because, you know, telling the truth is an unpalatable thing or even having an opinion that is off the reservation, right? So there's that. You've got to find someone who's prepared to tell the truth when they do the wrong thing. And there's a lot of the wrong thing going around. And in every case, that car maker would prefer for that knowledge not to be oxygenated, publicised, amplified, whatever you want to call it. So this is an opportunity for someone like me because I don't give a shit, right? I'm just going to tell you because I find it quite entertaining when they fuck up. I just do. And there's some value for you too because it's in the public interest, which is what journalism is supposed to be about. You're supposed to know the bad as well as the good. And if there's already a frigging flood of good and they're paying for the flood of good, the advertising, the business class flights, the big launches in places like Florence or Rome, whatever, you know, then there's an opportunity for balance is what I'm saying. And the he hates every car allegation, which I get all the time in the comments, is like, yeah, okay, I understand where that comes from because there are so many other journalists who are just engaged in a process of model-by-model model masturbation, right? I'm just not prepared to do that. That's kind of where I come in. And the other thing I'd say about brands, right, is you've got to have this awareness of the structure. You've got the brand which imports the cars and into Australia. They sell them to their dealers and there's a great deal of variability among car dealers. There are some really good car dealers who provide excellent support to the extent that they are able under the umbrella of the support envelope that's offered by the manufacturer. But there are also some properly shit 
operators among dealers who will bend you over at any opportunity, right? So you can have a good brand, but a shit dealer, and that's going to be bad for you. Or you could have a shit brand and a good dealer, and that can be bad for you. So the dealer is also important, is what I'm saying. The brand and the dealer matter. And that's kind of where I'm at. So with that in mind, uh, the other thing I'd say is that before we get into the top 10 or 12 brands, and I'll tell you what's wrong with them, as well as what's right, there's this incredible situation in cars in Australia, right, where excellence in customer support doesn't really exist, okay, because the market is so bad, the bad players are so bad with customers that the benchmark for excellence is actually just the brands that comply with consumer law. And to me, that's incredible because if I bought an Omega Speedmaster Professional watch, I, I own two Omega Speedmaster Professionals. One was the Moonshot watch that uh, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin wore on Apollo 11. In fact, it was the watch for the whole Apollo 11 mission and I bought it for myself when I graduated as an engineer because... It meant something to me. Like, you know, that, that watch was emblematic of the greatest scientific slash engineering achievement of human history. So I thought, well, yeah, this is, it's a symbol, okay? And then when they came up with the next one in that series, which was an LCD one that they wore on the space shuttle missions, I bought that one as well and I took it to Stockton Beach four-wheel driving in some test car and it was a really hot summer's day and I had the kids with me so we jumped into a freshwater lake basically, had a bit of a swim as you do and I go, oh, what's the time? Better start heading home and my fucking moon watch or well, my space shuttle watch is like full of water. I'm going, <coughs> Dish. right? So I send it back to the importer and they don't ask me any questions. They don't go, we need to see your receipt or they don't make me jump through any hoops. They don't make me pay a $1,500 diagnosis fee. I just send it back full of water and they go, I'm terribly sorry, here's a new one. And P.S., uh, we've given you a new band and if you didn't want the uh, whatever the leather band, then we got you the titanium band as well. So sorry. <laughs> that never happens in the car industry. It just doesn't, Right. Compliance with consumer law is the ultimate that you can hope for. And that's what separates the good brands from the shit brands currently. There is no excellence. There's just compliance or behaving like an asshole. So there's that. And with that in mind, let's run through the top 10. Uh, according to VFAX, which is the industry uh, sales brochure that comes out once a month, their sales figures, right? Toyota is on top. And they're generally pretty good, I think, uh, except when they decide to cover up a deficiency. See, Toyota has spent so much money marketing the myth that it is unbreakable, supremely reliable, just, you know, the best thing since sliced bread, that they cannot admit publicly when they fuck something up. And this has happened several times, the most recent of which was the federal court uh, deciding that Toyota was guilty of misleading and deceptive conduct in relation to 2.8-litre Hilux Fortuna and Prados, right, with defective, dodgy DPF engineering, basically, right? 260,000 vehicles with a potential compensation bill of $2.7 
billion bucks. Everybody knew that something was wrong with those engines. And Toyota was like, we're not seeing it, we're not commenting on that, we're not talking about it. And when uh, one organisation in particular brought it to light, they just copped a filthy letter from Toyota's lawyers. And essentially, Toyota took a high-level decision to lie to 260,000 people about the fit-for-purpose of those vehicles. So that's what they're like at the highest level. I would say, however, if you've just got sort of a one-off problem and it's warrantable or under consumer law, they're generally pretty good. So that's like a dichotomy to me. But if there is a, a widespread design deficiency, we've got plenty of evidence that they won't admit it and they'll go to great lengths to cover it up. And even in this case, they're appealing some of the uh, aggravated or accumulated damages, or aggregate damages, whatever the court calls it. When they, It's almost unprecedented for them to award aggregate damages like that, but Toyota's appealing it because I guess they've got the money to do that. Mazda's number two. And on the 14th of April in 2022, the ACCC filed an appeal against the federal court's decision to dismiss the ACCC's allegations that Mazda had engaged in unconscionable conduct. So they got pinged for a bunch of things. And this was in November of 2021, right? And I'm going to refer to my notes here because I want to get the facts straight. The court, this is in November of last year, okay, the court found that Mazda engaged in misleading and deceptive conduct and made false or misleading representations to nine consumers about their consumer guarantee rights. Basically, they kind of said, nah, you're not entitled to that sort of thing. But they dismissed the allegations that Mazda also engaged in unconscionable conduct in its dealings with the consumers, right? So, my gut feeling since then, since November of last year, is that Mazda's really lifted its game because I've seen plenty of emails from customers who have gone, you know, I've, I've had an eight-year-old Mazda and the engine just shat itself and they're replacing it for free. And so this is like night and day, right? And I think Mazda actually deserves the benefit of the doubt currently when it comes to compliance, which, as I explained, is almost excellence in relative terms at least when it comes to dealing with customers. Mitsubishi is currently number three in Australia and I'd suggest that they're pretty good about the only thing that they've swifty that they've kind of pulled is that if you want the 10-year warranty you must get the car serviced by the dealer and kind of on time as well right and I thought that was pretty shifty because you should be able to take your car wherever you can. The reality is you can't. You can take your car wherever you want to get it serviced. It's just that if you do that, the warranty goes back to five years. But I'm kind of happy with it at the moment because every twelve months it costs me like three hundred bucks to get my car serviced. It's it's a cheap bill in the context of what it costs you to live. Kia, currently number four. They're also pretty good. I mean, supply is Kia's biggest problem. Their best cars. Their best cars are like Sorento and Sportage and Carnival, which I all really like. The only problem with all of those vehicles is if you want one, particularly like a diesel, which would be the best one in the range, then it's like 12 months' wait. 
or something. You know, the war in Ukraine has actually helped them a little bit because the uh, sanctions against uh, against Russia has meant some supply capacity has freed up. But it's still pretty tough if you want to get one of their better cars. If you want to get one of their worst cars, no problem, dude. Got plenty of them. Uh, if you want an EV6, like, who knows? sort of thing. Hyundai, uh, also pretty good, also suffering from the same kind of problem. They're in number five at the moment. It, they would publicly say, we don't care that Kia's on top, but they do. And Kia would say, well, we don't care that we've overtaken Hyundai, but in the boardroom they're going. <laughs> it's a funny old world, isn't it? Anyway, uh, making Hyundai too complicated is their biggest problem because they've got all of these different sub-brands and getting to the bottom of that, if you're not a car dude, it's it's really quite hard. Like, what is Blue Drive and what is N-Line and what is N anyway? And are they special or is that just a body kit kind of thing? And it's all just very different. And Ionic, is, is that a car or a brand? Currently it's both kind of thing. Now, Ford is number six okay ford is like one model away from complete collapse in australia and they've just been lucky that the the previous ranger was not uh an unpopular shitbox and the current one is not going to be either so i think they're pretty safe for the time being but their entire existence in this country is leveraged off that one car off ranger and if it falls over disaster for them, okay? They are also historically appalling at reliability and even worse at customer support. And this is why I find myself torn because I really liked the previous Ranger, the 3.2 litre, five cylinder, six speed auto. I really liked that car, but I couldn't recommend it because of those reliability issues and the fact that they are just dead keen to throw you under the bus. Like, they will fight with everybody who has an EGR cooler failure on that engine at 85,000 Ks, even though consumer law is patently clear about what should really take place. So that's something to weigh up in the ownership equation. How much are you enamoured of Ranger and how much are you prepared to be uh, putting up with a complete shit sandwich if they do that to you when a problem like that happens five, six, whatever years down the track? Now, MG, this is kind of interesting as well because MG is currently number seven out of ten in Australia and they do have critical mass. They've got a big dealer network, they've got supply of vehicles and I think both of these factors are clearly assisting them to get into the top ten. The other, on the flip side, I'd suggest that because they haven't been here very long, MG is still kind of a mad experiment when it comes to reliability, resale value and support. Because it's one thing to have a big dealer network, but there's really just not enough data yet about how well that brand supports its products in service around the country. And I'm not suggesting they're doing a shit job. I'm suggesting that the data's not in. The experiment's running. The, the early adopters are all running the experiment. We just have to wait for the data to come in on that one. So it is a roll of the dice, shot in the dark, whatever, for the time being, if you buy an MG. But on the other side, they're cheap. They're like affordable. 
They're much more affordable than any of the previously mentioned established brands. So there's that. And money does talk in this market. Now, Isuzu Ute currently running at number eight, and I'd suggest that they are just terrible when it comes to support. They don't have a big dealer network. And I've got so many people who have reached out to me and said, we're getting thrown under the bus here unfairly, that this must be smoke and fire. Okay, so in in good conscience, I cannot recommend Isuzu to a buyer. So I find myself in this position. Someone says, I want to buy a D-Max. I go, yeah, okay, we can help you with that, right? Someone says to me, I want to buy a D-Max. What do you think? I say, Buy a Mazda BT50, dude, because it is a D-Max, but Mazda's support is like a thousand times better than Isuzu's. So if that's the vehicle that floats your boat, then buy the vehicle that you like, but from the brand that's less likely to throw you under the bus. Number nine, Subaru. And Subaru has so many bolted on uh, followers. And what I'd say is Subaru is great at customer support. They actually give people the benefit of the doubt, right? So if you front at Subaru and it's line ball, they will usually find in your favor. Like you might've missed, not by much, but let's say you're a couple of months late on a, serv uh, on a service or th there's some other call, like maybe we're outside the envelope of reasonable durability, but you're suitably indignant and you love the brand, blah, blah, blah. They're really likely to find for you and say, no, no, we'll support you. That's okay, kind of thing. So that's an anomaly, right? There's only a few car makers that do that. Uh, Hyundai and Kia are pretty good at that. Mazda's trending that way. And as long as it's not a widespread design deficiency, Toyota's sort of approaching that level as well. But the problem with Subaru is that they're sort of incrementally losing that bulletproof reliability status they previously had. But this is a slow process and they're still pretty reliable. I did not just say Subaru's a shit at reliability. But what I do notice with Subaru, and this is an unpleasant change, is because Toyota is such a big stakeholder of Subaru, Subaru is just having the passion and the excitement sucked out of it, leaving it, in many respects, a withered husk. Like, they're just not as exciting as they were, and there's no fix for that because you get a whole bunch of Toyota bean counters and you inject them into Subaru, what do you think's going to happen? And once you start acquiring momentum in that direction, then that's the direction the train's headed in, dude. And as I see it, the brakes are failing on excitement and Subaru. So there's that. And finally, uh, Mercedes-Benz has hit number 10 out of 10. Not because they've done anything particularly excellent. In fact, they haven't. They've just... They're on a hiding to nowhere now since they've boned all their dealers and they're looking down the barrel of this $650 million lawsuit. They're crap at customer care. If your Mercedes-Benz falls apart into 10,000 pieces on the road, they are likely to say to you, when you ask them for support, they're likely to say, oh, that's, not, that's not a problem. That's an operational characteristic. I've seen letters from them to customers to that effect. Like there's some major problem, like the four-wheel drive, all-wheel drive system crabbing issue where... Those all-wheel drive Benzes just can't do a U-turn without throwing a friggin' tantrum. That's an operational characteristic, 
right? Not a design deficiency, please. The reason Mercedes-Benz cars is in the top 10 currently is basically because two established players in the top 10, Nissan and Volkswagen, have both sort of logistically gone poopy in their trousers and they've fallen out of the top 10 and Mercedes-Benz is just kind of the detritus that's flown up, floated up to the neutral buoyancy in the sewer to fill their spot. So, you know, I think if you're in the market for a car and you're confused and you're looking at the websites and they're all saying, oh, this car or that car is the best thing ever, then that's unhelpful. It's unhelpful when it comes to narrowing it down. And if you want to really narrow it down, if you want to do it surgically and precisely, and you want to do it like triage, right? Like with triage, you've got to get to the bottom quickly of what's important, what needs to be done now, what's what's good, what's bad, okay? So if you want to do that, just eliminate the crap brands and then make a selection from the list of brands that remain in the not crap department and forget about excellence because customer service excellence from car makers simply flat out does not exist in Australia.